Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the ways this morning in which we've seen you already at work and can see clearly your love for your children, for those who have been called by faith into the relationship we have through Christ. And thank you, Father, that you have brought us here for prayer, for fellowship, for the sharing and testimony of things you've done in our lives, for the chance to celebrate the work of our hands done in your name and by your spirit. Thank you, Father, for music and the way it lifts us up to call upon your name and worship. And, Father, for the teaching of your word as well. Thank you, Father, that we belong to a church in which the word of God is centermost in our minds, which we put it first in our hearts. For we know its purpose, Father, is to grow us into the grace and knowledge of Christ. We ask, Father, that you do that work this morning. We study the book before us knowing it was written to another people and another time, but that's only from man's point of view. We know that you wrote it. And you intended it for us. So let us hear it in that way this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say we like to compare ourselves to others. We're actually trained to think that way. Back in school, we're, we're taking tests and we're ranking classmates. And even at work, we get graded and performance reviewed every year, right? Sports are no fun unless you keep score. We're programmed by all of those things and then by our own nature to keep tabs on us compared to someone else. And unfortunately, there's usually somebody in our environment who is better than us in whatever criteria or category we're going to use to compare. There's always someone smarter. There's always someone richer. There's always someone better looking. There's always someone more capable in whatever measure we have to choose from, and that makes us feel a little diminished. But fortunately, there is also usually someone in the crowd who is less than us. That If we look hard enough, there's always someone who's less wise than we feel we are. Someone who's less strong, someone who's less capable, someone who's less attractive. That reason above all others explains why I invited Ken to join this church. (laughs) And of course, we know in our heart that those comparisons are vain. We know that they're meaningless, especially from an eternal point of view. But we make them nonetheless. So often we do it unconsciously even. It's how we prop up our ego. But the vanity and pride of mankind isn't limited to simply making comparisons between one another. We also make comparisons between ourselves and God. Unbelievers do this routinely. They compete with God, both in power and in wisdom. And they do it by creating rules for themselves. But more importantly, if you'll notice, they create rules for God. They define who he is, what he can do, and what he thinks. They define what he wants, so that then they can define what will please him, so that then they may do as they please But that kind of wisdom, quote, wisdom, is utterly bankrupt in the face of a living God who will not be defined by his creation. The real shame, though, is that that tendency is not limited to sinful unbelievers. Believers also have a tendency to do this very same thing. And that's what Paul's facing in the letter he writes here to the church in Corinth. This church in Corinth was so busy patting itself on its back about who had followed who and who had saved who and who was whose disciple that they never took stock of who really did the work of their salvation. And it wasn't Paul and it wasn't Apollos and it wasn't Peter, as we said last week. Greek society loved to make these comparisons. In fact, from what I know in studying the society that Paul is talking to, I think they may have been the best at this, even better than we are in some respects. They love to talk about Who was better in any respect? Remember, the modern-day Olympics found its origins in Greek society. These are the guys that invented games of sport for the purpose of making comparisons. And their philosophers and their wise men would spend all day every day standing around talking about who knew the most about whatever 
ethereal topic happened to be on the top of their minds. They did not, this church of believers in Corinth, they did not understand how they had come to faith. And as a result, they started making distinctions or comparisons between one another about who was the more worthy Christian. They had not only misunderstood how they came to faith, but they had turned that misunderstanding into a point of prideful comparison. And so the church had started to look for someone within the body who they could compare themselves to and in that comparison feel better about themselves. So the guy who was of Apollos, well, you're nothing. I'm of Paul. Because you can always find someone who is less than you. There was a story of a husband and wife that went in to get their car from their mechanic. And they go to pick it up and the mechanic says, I'm sorry, we're a little delayed getting your car ready for because we've locked your keys in the car. And so they go into the shop to see what was going on. And they walk up and there's the mechanic working furiously at the driver's door trying to get the, the door unlocked. And the husband who's standing on the passenger side of the car while this is happening, he just instinctively decides to try the door. And he pulls the door and it opens. And he, he tells the mechanic, hey, this side's open. And the mechanic goes, yeah, yeah, I know, I already got that one. <laughs> it's a true story. There's always somebody out there you can find, if you want to make a comparison, who will look more foolish than you. God, Paul says last week, took the message of the gospel and made it foolish so that it mocks the so-called wisdom of men. Ironically, the people of Corinth were saying to themselves that they were worth something because they were of Paul or of Apollos, and they had conveniently overlooked an important detail in God's plan concerning who God was at work choosing to enter into the body of Christ. And so Paul now is going to set them straight. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, verse 25. He says in verse 25, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, why am I stopping on this verse? Because it's a fantastic transition between the two things Paul covers in this chapter. The opening verse here, the opening word of this verse is hoti. It's Greek for just because. It means let us make a conclusion. In those earlier verses, what did Paul say? Well, what we covered last week, that there was a foolish sounding message in the gospel sent out into the world so that the word of the cross, this gospel message, would be rejected by men who seek the truth in their own power, but received by those who, by the power of God, come to understand it. And that means that men, by their so-called wisdom, are going to be led away from the truth, mocking their wisdom, while those who God grants the ability to understand will come to this foolish message, demonstrating the power of God. Now, Paul said that last time. Now, Paul has gone to work with this foolish message rather than to dress it up with clever speech. Why didn't Paul try to improve on the method? Because Paul says now God's foolishness is more effective. It's more powerful. Relying on the foolishness of God, so to speak, is far better, Paul says, than taking chances with the wisdom of men. And obviously he's speaking sarcastically. There's nothing foolish when it comes to God. But from man's point of view... Even when God's ideas seem foolish to us, they are infinitely more wise and powerful than anything man comes up with on his best day. So to the world who would say the message of the gospel is not well received, people don't like it, it tends to offend, it's certainly not sensible, we can do better. We'll make the message about prosperity or about healing or about community or about acceptance or about something else. Get the attention with that message because the gospel doesn't work very well, in our opinion, and we'll make that are preaching. Paul says, I didn't do that. 
Because all of that so-called wisdom pales in comparison to the apparent foolishness of God in the gospel message. But it's not just the message of the gospel that was made foolish. That was what we studied last week. This week we're going to find out, as he finishes the first chapter, that God didn't just stop there. He didn't just design a foolish message that no man in his right mind would ever accept on its face. He then goes a step further and he went out of his way to choose an audience that mocks the pride of men. Paul says, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Paul begins by asking believers in Corinth to do what I'm going to ask us to do. Consider your calling. Consider your calling. The word for consider it just means reflect. Take note. Take a closer look at your calling. Specifically, take note of who God has called into his church. Look around. Consider your peers in the church generally. Paul describes them and us in three ways. He says, not many were wise. Not many are noble. Not many are mighty. Now, we don't know much about the demographic makeup of this church. We know they're Greek, but we don't really know more than what Paul himself says about Corinth. But as a major Greek city, we can make some assumptions about the city as a whole. For example, we know Corinth would have had its share of philosophers and wise men being such a prominent city in the Roman Empire. And the city was relatively prosperous. They were wealthy commercial centers. So we know they would have had their share of wealthy people in the city as well. And as a center for Greek worship with the Aphrodite temple there, we know they would have had their privileged class of rulers and priests and so on. They had all of those things in this city. And Paul says that the church itself was not populated by many of those classes. Those groups, in other words, are underrepresented within the population of the church, given the group from which it's drawn, the city of Corinth. Now, it's important to note, Paul says that there aren't many. He's not saying there were none. He's not saying there were no wise men, no people of nobility, no mighty people. He's saying that there weren't many. There isn't any class of people who are excluded from God's plan of salvation. All people are included to some degree. Paul says in Romans 2.11 that he's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't have some favoritism for some group over another. But... Paul says there were few of those elite members of society, elite by men's standards, few of them, relatively speaking. I want you to consider the irony. Here's a church that's arguing amongst itself about establishing some pecking order, some measure of status, some measure of privilege within itself, all trying to gain advantage one over another by comparison. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, or whatever else they invented. And Paul points out If you just look around, you might notice you ain't nobody. You're not special according to the world's standards. It's like two 90-year-old men living in a retirement home, widowers, arguing about who is the most eligible bachelor. Well, it kind of depends on your standard, doesn't it? Those two men might find some basis in their logic for settling that argument and deciding who is the more eligible of the two. But the world would look at these guys and say, on any list of eligible bachelors, you guys are near the bottom. That's effectively what's happening in Corinth. You have men and women contending for status within the church, and they're forgetting that they're fighting over the scraps of Corinthian society. 
In verse 27, Paul says, the Lord specifically chose certain people to be included in the church. The Lord chose, he says, those who were not wise, not strong, not noble. And he did so, Paul says, to mock human thinking and human pride. The wise, you know, the strong, the privileged of Greek society, they congratulate themselves. In fact, you could extrapolate to today. There's no difference. I mean, today it's the same. Those elite classes of society, wherever they are, they congratulate themselves on their accomplishments, on their status, on what they are and who they are relative to the rest of society. They invent their own gods as a result. They make their own rules. They live oblivious to any coming judgment. They are often above the law. They are outside of the norm. They are elitist. And every society has them and always will until Christ comes and establishes justice. And so the Lord in the way he's designed the church, has intentionally set it up so that it mocks the self-importance of elitists by extending his grace disproportionately, though not exclusively, to the weak and to the worthless by the world's standards. I hope I'm not stepping on too many toes if I point out the fact that there are not many among us here who are wise. There's not many in here who are strong. I mean, by strength, we're not referring to physical strength. We're talking about the strength you can exert in societal terms. And certainly there's not many in here who would be considered noble. How do you explain that? Chance? Well, how does the world explain it? Governor Jesse Ventura, when asked about religion, what did he say? Religion was a crutch for the weak-minded. That's the elitist's view of what religion is for. It keeps... The unwashed masses happy and satisfied. Just as the Lord authored the gospel, he wrote it in such a way that it mocks the wisdom of men. So he also is at work building his church with a people who, by the nature of who they are, are mocking the pride of men and the elite stature and notion of elitism among men. And the Lord has always done this. This is not new to the church. I want to remind you a little bit of history, even things we've studied in here out of Genesis. Remember from our study, the many times we watched God working to choose one man over another, but always choosing the one the world would not accept as being the right choice. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. Remember, he chose Jacob over Esau. He chose Joseph over his brothers. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, he chose David over his brothers to be king. If you want the perfect example, who was Christ? Who did the Lord choose to incarnate his son as? The most powerful, the most attractive, the most noble. No. He was a carpenter's son from a place so lowly, people had made of saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? He purposely made his son someone that Isaiah says was not even attractive to look at. So that Christ is not measured by human standards, by his look, by his size, by his impressive stature. God has always been in the business of selecting the one you would not expect so as to mock the standards and the desires of men's sinful flesh. And he's building this church exactly this way today. Earlier in this letter, Paul taught how we can make the gospel or the cross of Christ void. And he said we can do that when we substitute our wisdom or our thought for God's. When we change the message, we make it void. And now... When we claim that our place, our very existence in the church is somehow a reflection of individual merit, then we make the grace of God void. 
undermining God's purpose in bringing the church into existence. That as we express any pride or ego about our being in the faith, about our joining into the faith of God, that we are undermining God's purpose in our very existence on earth. Deuteronomy 32.20 The Lord said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not my people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Moses told the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy that God would in the future call a foolish people into a relationship with him so that he could mock the so-called wisdom of Israel as they disobeyed the word of God. Do you know the foolish nation he was talking about? You. Me. Folks, to the extent that we portray ourselves as not foolish, but wise and discerning, not due grace, but worthy of God's love, to the extent we even create that sense in our heart or we speak it in any way to someone else, we're actually working against the very purpose God had in bringing us into the faith. Now, that is not licensed to go be foolish. That's not what God is asking us to do either. We can go silly and take it to the other extreme. We're not thinking that, of course. But just in who you are and who I am, God is making a point to the world. And that is that those who would be least likely to discover and follow the God of Israel, that is a Gentile, will do so. While those who have all the advantages that should lead them To know and follow their God, the people of Israel, aren't doing it, at least for the time. When we claim a status or a worth in the face of our salvation that is not in keeping with Scripture, we are like those old men in that retirement home. There's nothing special and deserving about any of us, and yet we make ourselves be greater than we really are. It's so easy in a culture in which everything is status. If you don't have the two cars in the right house these days, you're nobody. If your TV can't compare with someone else's in size, you're nobody. That's how the world feels about it. That's not to say that we are necessarily thinking about that, but we can get pulled into that if we're not careful. When we feel the need to boast, be careful what you boast about. Later in 2 Corinthians, when Paul writes to this church a second time or third time, technically, he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. The Lord has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Here's how the boasting of the Christian should sound. If you have to boast at all, here's how it should sound. I had no idea what I was doing. Didn't even know where to start. Didn't have nearly enough energy to get it done. Was desperately worried I was going to fail miserably. And yet... Look at all the great things that God did despite my weaknesses. There's a boast of a Christian. If I were to boast as a teacher, I wouldn't be to say, look at all the great things I saw in Scripture. It would say, you know what? I gave very little time to it, far less than I should have. I really didn't understand a lot. Somehow, when it all came out, it made some sense. Thank God. We're supposed to boast of what God did in us, not who we are naturally. We know that God has chosen a foolish people to shame Israel, a weak people to shame the world. I didn't deserve this. I have no greater right to be in the church than you do. I was saved by grace no different than anyone else. And so that's the thing we ought to be boasting about, about how much God has done in compensating for your weaknesses. 
That's what Paul says. Look at the end of chapter 1, verse 29. He says, so that no man may boast before God. The whole plan of God is designed to silence the boasting of men concerning God's work, especially in the plan of redemption. No man, I can assure you, is going to stand before God on the day of his redemption and take any credit, not even the least amount, for their presence before the Lord saved in the grace of Christ. No one will have a a, a thing to say about that. We didn't examine the cosmos one day, uncover the truth of the gospel, deduce its message down to the right words, and then embrace it in our own power. We didn't do that. We may have thought we did that, but you did not do that according to the word of God. Because the message was too foolish, it was too unattractive, you weren't smart enough, you weren't thinking about the problem the right way, you're dead to the message because of your sin, and therefore, as God designed it, you could not come to it apart from his power. The grace of God is not evidenced in the opportunity to be saved. The grace of God is evidenced in the fact you accepted that you even could accept the salvation that he offered. According to Paul, this is what the Lord did for each of us. The Lord went out of his way to stack his team with the last string. That's what he's done with the church. If salvation were a kickball game, God picked last and he got you. If the church were a prom, we're the date with the good personality. That's what scripture says. We get picked last, so to speak, because he wants the world to say, how can that team have anything To offer spiritually so that the humbleness of who we are in Christ will be ever before us. So if the message of the gospel is designed to be rejected apart from the power of God, if that's its design, and if those who receive the power to believe are specifically chosen by God to make a point to the world, to be a certain kind of group, then what does that say about how you became a believer? What does that say about the process of becoming a Christian? If the message is designed so that you can't accept it apart from the power of God, and as he gives that power, he does it only to people who serve a certain purpose in his plan of creating a certain pattern. What does that say about how you come to be a believer? Paul gives us that unavoidable conclusion in verses 30 and 31. He says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That opening phrase you can't overlook. By his doing, we are in Christ Jesus. Take a closer look at that statement, starting with the end first. We are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. To be in Christ is a uniquely Pauline phrase. It appears in the New Testament no less than 83 times in his letters. In Christ, in Christ. You know, for some of us, we might have written it differently. We would say we are of Christ. We believe in him, so we have become of him. But Paul always says in Christ as opposed to of, because I think it represents our positional righteousness. We have been placed in him. It also supports the picture that the ark of Noah created in picturing Christ. When the family of Noah, the saved, the righteous, went into the ark and the door closed, they were in there, saved from the judgment that came upon the world. We likewise, by faith, are in Christ And that door has been closed by God, just as it was for Noah. And we are securely in Christ. So we are in the Lord by faith. We are sealed until the day of our redemption. So how did you find yourself in that situation? How did you get in the ark? How did you get in Christ? He says, by the Lord's doing. That's the unavoidable conclusion you come to from all of what he just wrote in all of chapter one. 
Nothing else can explain why you are in Christ. We didn't reason our way into the relationship. We didn't apply for membership. We didn't deserve it on the basis of personal merit. There's no other explanation. And the purpose God set forth in creating the church was established long before we were even born. He wanted a foolish nation before we even had taken our first breath. So God was at work bringing us into the body of Christ long before we had anything to say in the matter. That's the unavoidable conclusion of chapter one. Paul's statement is an expression of the doctrine of election. Election, if you don't already know, is the truth of how God elects or chooses to extend his grace to some according to his sovereign will and eternal purpose. Those he elects to receive his grace come to him, drawn by the spirit, saved through faith. Scripture uses the word elect because even though the message of the gospel goes out to the whole world, God does not draw everyone by that message. Jesus himself says in Matthew's gospel, many are called, but few are chosen. The message goes out, but its effectiveness is designed according to God's will and purpose so that the message is accepted only by the power of God. And those who accept it are those who've been appointed to so that there could be a foolish people at the end of the day. Now, Paul doesn't teach the depths of the doctrine here in this passage. That's not his point. You'd probably be better to go to Romans 9 if you want to get into that. But the reality of it is clearly evident. In fact, without the doctrine of election, you cannot make sense of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. There's no way to interpret what he just said in 1 Corinthians without that doctrine. His entire basis of his argument to the church in Corinth for why they should not be boasting amongst themselves in who brought them the message of the gospel is because, he says, You're in faith by God's doing, not by the doings of men and with a foolish message and to the end that you have a foolish crowd. Those things don't happen by chance. Those are statements that only make sense if, in fact, God is orchestrating the details of the process. You are in Christ because of the Lord himself, by the hand of God, through the spirit and the word of God, your mind renewed, your heart quickened, and then belief enters. And Paul says in the same way, God becomes our righteousness in Christ. We can all eagerly look forward to the day we stand before the Lord on our day of judgment because we will stand there in Christ's righteousness, not our own. Moreover, Christ becomes the source of our sanctification. Now, in this context, sanctification refers to is that future sanctification, that fulfilling of all things, the coming to the end of ourselves in a glorified state. It's the opportunity to live in glory one day with Christ. How can we be assured we will have that time? Because God will give us the new body that Christ earned for us. And then finally, Christ is our redemption. He is the one who conquers death. He is the one who pays the price for our sin. Having made that payment, we can be assured we share in his inheritance. All of those things, Paul says, are Christ's. None of them are ours. So if you're going to boast, Paul says, boast in Christ. How can we take what Paul's taught that church and use it in our own experience? Well, practice extends from doctrine. What you believe will determine what you do. If you understand God's sovereignty in the course of salvation, then you have no motivation at that point to consider yourself anything other than the recipient of grace. We didn't earn. We didn't deserve. We didn't merit. We weren't smart. We didn't figure it out. We came to the Lord because he called us into that relationship. For some, that truth becomes a stumbling block, one in which we feel hampered in our presentation of the gospel, one in which we become overly concerned or absorbed with God's sovereignty and how he works through who's in and who's out. But for others, it becomes a freeing, liberating, humbling theology as it's intended, 
I suddenly have greater impetus to share the gospel because it's not up to me. I don't have to be good with my words. I don't have to be particularly clever in my presentation of the gospel. I don't even have to get all the facts straight. Though I should do my best in all cases to do so. I just have to be willing because at any moment God may choose to take what I do and turn it to glory for his name in the saving power of the gospel message. What a freeing concept. What a liberating one. What an emboldening one. If you see it that way, then you've heard it properly. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that you chose a foolish people, for we were foolish. And thank you, God, that you brought the gospel to us by your power, for we could not have found it in our own. And thank you, Father, that you have given us the word to correct our thinking about who we are in Christ so that we would not be tempted to boast in such a way that we would undermine your purpose in calling us in the first place. I pray, Father, that our hearts would always be directed in humility and in boldness to share the gospel message because we know it is your power, not ours, that can make it real in the hearts of believers. And with that humbleness, Father, and with that boldness, we know you can do a lot. We know you can do everything. Give us confidence to trust in that work so that we may be obedient. Thank you, Father, for the preaching of your word, for the church that honors it, and for an opportunity to come back again next week and continue our study. I pray this in Jesus' name.